Thank you, Sarah. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 16 this morning. We want to look at verses 1 through 12. The leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Uh, Matthew 16, 1 through 12. Lord, we thank you for how you work in our lives, even as we had sung for us, uh, illustrated there. Uh, Lord, you have, you have touched our lives and you have changed our lives, and, and we rejoice in that truth. And Lord, as we consider these religious people today, and uh, Lord, how they really weren't open to the truth of the Scriptures and where it leads uh, and where that left them. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would minister to our hearts and strengthen us in our faith. And, and Lord, if there are those listening that haven't come to faith, we pray that the Holy Spirit would work in their hearts to bring them uh, to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. So we commit our study to you now. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, note the theme uh, uh, on the overhead here. Uh, the theme of the book of Matthew is Christ the King. And we have worked our way down to that section in chapters 14 through 16, the revelations of the King. In response to the Jews, led by their Jewish religious leaders, largely rejecting the Messianic claims of the Lord Jesus Christ, we then find a shift in Jesus Christ's ministry, from strictly targeting the Jews to now also including the Gentiles. In Matthew 15, we see him delivering a Canaanite woman's daughter from demon possession. And then we see Jesus feeding the, the 4,000 uh, from the Gentile area of Decapolis, uh, which is presumed to have been mostly Gentile in makeup in terms of the, the crowd that was there as he fed the 4,000. Well, at the end of chapter 15, we see Jesus leaving the Gentile territory of Decapolis and once again making his way to the Jewish area of Galilee, and in particular, Magdala in the Jewish uh, territory of Galilee. So uh, note, uh, here's where we have tracked. Uh, Jesus was down here in this area, has made his way up to the area here at Magdala. And that's where we uh, pick up our story here in chapter 16. Well, immediately upon returning to Jewish territory, Jesus was met by the antagonistic Jewish religious leaders as seen here at the beginning of chapter 16. So we see a marked contrast between Gentile openness and Jewish hostility, which marks Christ's ministry from this point forward, culminating in the cross. Matthew 16 marks a major turning point in Christ's ministry. We see him completely forsaking the religious leaders of Israel. We see Christ introducing church truth for the first time in this chapter. And we see Christ now forthrightly preparing his disciples for his coming death. Well, that leads us into our study. Let's get started. Chapter 16, verse 1. Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came and testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. When Jesus arrived back in Jewish territory, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were the welcoming committee. But they were not friendly. Uh, they come challenging Jesus, or as it says here in verse 1, testing him. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were theological enemies. But here they make common cause against Jesus. They didn't agree on much of anything else, but they did agree on their hostility against Jesus. You see, the Pharisees were the theological legalists, and the Sadducees were the theological liberals. However, the Supreme Court in Israel, called the Sanhedrin, was comprised of both Pharisees and Sadducees, although the Sadducees were the, were the major leaders. But the, the su Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, was comprised of both Pharisees and Sadducees, and it may be that these were a representative committee sent here by the Sanhedrin. But we are not told this. However, it is clear that they were together in this endeavor because the two nouns are here joined together by one definite article. This indicates one delegation and not two separate groups. Note that the word translated here as testing can also be translated as tempting, as it is in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. To test in the sense of tempting is to challenge in a malicious sort of way. 
with the intent uh, to harm or bring down. And they were here to test Jesus in the sense of wanting him to fail. Uh, Clearly, their motives were evil and full of ill will. This was not an honest evaluation, but rather a hostile challenge on the part of these who had already decided against Jesus. Now, it's never right to challenge the Lord. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Who do we think we are to challenge God in any way, shape, or form? God, I'm challenging you to act. You know, some charismatic teachers almost come off this way, like, you know, we're just just really pressing it. It's never right to challenge the Lord. It is sinfully presumptuous. I mean, who are we as mere humans with three-pound brains ever right to try and judge God? Uh, That is a reversal of roles. God alone is the judge. He is the one who tests us to see if we are genuine and never the other way around. Always remember there is only one God and we are not him. He is the potter. We are the clay. But here come the Pharisees and the Sadducees in a challenging sort of way, like they are in the authoritative role. They come challenging Jesus to show them a sign from heaven. Now, Jesus had done so many earthly sign miracles, but that was not enough for them. They were demanding a heavenly sign. Uh, Stanley Toussaint says this, A superstitious belief existed among the Hebrews that demons could perform works on earth, but only God could execute a sign from heaven. So here they come. We want a sign from heaven. Remember back in chapter 12 that the Pharisees were saying that Jesus was able to cast out demons by the power of Satan. So this train of thought may very well have been behind their demand for a sign from heaven. They wanted Jesus to do something like command fire to fall from heaven as happened under Elijah's ministry or to see something on the order of the plagues that fell on Egypt under the ministry of Moses or make the sun stand still as happened in the days of Joshua. Something like this, some sign from heaven which would really prove that he was from God. Well, in truth, there had already been a sign from heaven at the very beginning of Christ's ministry uh, when he was baptized by John. At that time, Matthew 3.17 records, suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. How about that? How about a sign from heaven right at the very beginning of Christ's ministry? In truth, this demand was really a moot point because all the many miracles that Christ had done were from heaven. That is, having the authorization of heaven behind them, as seen in the fact that they aligned perfectly with the fulfillment of the prophetic scriptures as a cohesive whole. Well, Christ responds, verse 2, He answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. What Jesus was quoting in reference to these religious leaders is similar to the old maxim that says, Red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky in the morning, sailors take warning. Hypocrites are inconsistent with the truth. They knew how to discern the weather, to some level, on a natural plane. But they did not know how to discern spiritual truth relevant to the times as revealed through Jesus the Messiah. So on the physical plane, okay. On the spiritual plane, not okay. They could connect the dots concerning physical realities, but they could not connect the dots concerning spiritual realities. The whole issue was discernment. Discernment. And you know what discernment has to do with? What does discernment, my friends, have to do with? What do you understand? You understand the scriptures. 
and you apply the scriptures appropriately. Discernment has everything to do with knowing and properly applying the scriptures. This was their problem. They were applying natural principles to natural realities related to the weather, but they failed to discern. They failed to properly apply the scriptures to the situation at hand concerning Jesus. They had a scriptural discernment problem. Now, signs have a message. Signs point to something. The word times refers to specific turning points in redemptive history. Ed Glasscock says this, The signs of the times might more literally be translated the indications of the appointed time or occasion, referring, of course, to the appointed time of the Messiah. There were indicators on the scene, consistent with Scripture, that clearly pointed to this being a major turning point in redemptive history. The signs of the times were clearly evident as seen in the messianic ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, I want to underscore that signs always line up with Scripture. The miraculous sign ministry of Christ lined up with Scripture. Signs and Scripture always go together. They're not in a vacuum. That's how we know the truth of the signs, because they line up with Scripture. Well, the Jews were all about signs. These times of the Messiah clearly pointed to Jesus being the Messiah. John in his gospel consistently uses the word signs for miracles. The miracles of Christ were sign miracles, pointing to him as the true Messiah. By the way, does God do miracles today? Well, of course God can do miracles anytime he wants, anywhere. But the miracles in the gospels were sign miracles specifically pointing to Jesus, the Messiah, in fulfillment of Scripture. There are no sign miracles going on today. We don't need any further proof. We don't need further sign miracles uh, pointing to Jesus as the Messiah. We have the Scriptures, the all-sufficient Scriptures. So yes, God can work in any way miraculously. He wants to anytime, anywhere. But miracles in the Bible do not come in a vacuum. They have sign value. The Jews were all about signs. They were about as fanatical about signs as many charismatics are today. And yet when Jesus came presenting a boatload of signs, they didn't believe and demanded more. It was so characteristic of them that, that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.22, the Jews request a sign. I mean, that's, that's their evidence. We want a sign. Greeks seek after wisdom. And he says, in contrast to both of those, we preach Christ crucified uh, to the Jews of stumbling block, to the Gentiles' foolishness. What specifically were these signs of the times that they should have recognized? Well, first, there was John the Baptist. How about John? In perfect fulfillment of Isaiah 40, verse 3, he stepped out on the stage of history as the voice of one crying in the wilderness, preparing the way for who? The Lord. He's the forerunner to the Lord. And then there was the miracles of Christ, which were unique to him in scope and volume, in perfect keeping with the Old Testament prophecies related to the coming messianic kingdom. And then there was the wisdom of Christ, which no one could refute in fulfillment of passages like Isaiah chapter 11, where we read, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and a fear of the Lord. The brilliance of Jesus was absolutely Unbelievable, uh, believable, <laughs> incredible. That's not the right word I want to use in this context. Uh, these religious leaders saw this firsthand. They saw his wisdom as he regularly shut them down and they didn't know how to answer him. Consistently, this was the pattern. He completely stymied their best attempts to stump him. They never stumped him, ever. Now, good students of the scriptures should have connected the prophetic dots. Born of a virgin... 
Yeah, Isaiah 7, 14. Born in Bethlehem. Oh, yeah, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. The timing of Messiah's coming in relation to the 69th week of Daniel as seen, oh, yeah, Daniel 9, 26. All of this harmonized perfectly with the signs of the times as fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. But one of the most obvious signs was, ready for this? It's like it's too obvious. One of the most obvious signs was their rejection of Jesus Christ. How could they miss this? You see, the Messiah was to be rejected by the builders, which is to say, the leaders. And here they were rejecting this most unusual person who claimed to be the Messiah. It all aligned perfectly with the scriptures. The scriptures they knew very well, by the way. And yet they missed the obvious right in front of them. They knew Psalm 118. They knew this psalm very well. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. He's behind this. He's rejected, but he's become the chief cornerstone. And it's marvelous in our eyes. Peter, in addressing the Jewish religious leaders, sought to show them that indeed Jesus was the Messiah, risen from the dead, according to the scriptures. And he did it by quoting and applying this psalm. In Acts chapter 4, this is the stone which was rejected by you builders, you leaders, you religious leaders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He is the special one. Now the signs of the times all pointed to the truth of who Jesus was as the Messiah, the Christ, who was here fulfilling the prophetic scriptures to the letter. Yes, they could discern the weather patterns, but here they were missing the most obvious of spiritual signs, the scriptural patterns that all pointed to the fact that Jesus was the prophesied Messiah. And what was the heart, pun intended, of their problem? Well, Jesus spells it out in verse 4. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. There is none so blind as he who will not see. There is such a thing as willful blindness. Even though such people see, yet they don't see because they refuse to see. Jesus said the condemnation is that men loved darkness rather than light. That implies an obvious choice. A choice of rejection. Voltaire was a famous French atheist. And he said this at one point. He said, quote, Even if a miracle should be wrought in the open marketplace before a thousand sober witnesses, I would rather mistrust my senses than admit a miracle. You hear what he's saying? It doesn't matter how strong the evidence is, I would deny a miracle. You see, unbelief always demands more evidence. Because in truth, rebel unbelief chooses not to believe, no matter how strong the evidence is. You say, well, if we just had more evidence. That is not the ultimate issue. Unbelief doesn't believe because it doesn't want to believe. It loves darkness rather than light. This was the case here. They didn't discern because they didn't want to discern. They weren't really open to the truth. They were here to prove Jesus wrong, no matter what the evidence said. Therefore, Jesus called them a wicked and adulterous generation. There's a wicked problem here. This isn't an intellectual problem. This is a wicked problem. So often we want to just say, well, it's an intellectual problem. No, it's a wicked problem. It's not that the evidence is insufficient. That's never the issue. The word wicked 
means evil. It is a word used to personify the devil himself. It refers to that which is morally corrupt and is in opposition to that which is morally right and good. Thus, Jesus, speaking to the Jewish people of his day, the Jewish leaders of his day, called them morally perverse and really devil-like in character. No wonder they hated him. Furthermore, he called them an adulterous generation. Adultery signifies unfaithfulness. Unfaithfulness to the covenant relationship of marriage. God applies this term spiritually to his unfaithful people, Israel. They were in covenant relationship with him, but they were spiritually unfaithful. In view here is spiritual adultery, spiritual unfaithfulness to God. These religious leaders were leading a whole generation in the ways of spiritual adultery, spiritual unfaithfulness. This moral perverseness and spiritual unfaithfulness revealed itself in now seeking after a further sign. When God has provided ample evidence, it becomes a matter of wicked unfaithfulness to demand further signs. It's indicative of sinful unbelief. It's amazing how people want signs, want signs. What about the Bible? I am always appalled at how, how quickly and how easily people dismiss the Bible. And we want other shiny objects outside of the scriptures. Even in our own circles, that happens. Again, it's not like they didn't have any signs or evidence. The entire ministry of Christ involves so much sign evidence that John in his gospel said this. John 12, 37. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe. And then at the end of the Gospel of John, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. God does not cater to willful unbelief. They had rejected the overwhelming sign evidence already given, so no more would be given. The problem was not a lack of evidence. The problem was their wicked and adulterous rebellion. Therefore, Jesus said no further sign would be given except, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And on that note, Jesus left them. The irony here is that they rejected all the obvious sign miracles that Jesus had done, which lined up perfectly with the prophetic scriptures. But in leaving them, in leaving them, he does leave them with one more sign, which was yet to be fulfilled at this point, but it would be a sign. Jesus, in effect, left them with the scriptural story of Jonah, which is a prophetic type of Christ. Jesus left them hanging here with scripture about Jonah. The last thing he said to them is scripture that is a sign that points to me. What he called the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, don't you think they had to really wonder, what in the world is that about? Well, they should have checked it out. They should have reread the story about Jonah and how a great fish swallowed him and three days later spit him out on dry ground because he tasted bad. No, that's not what it was. And they should have listened to Christ and what he said about being in the grave for three days and then he would rise again. And if they would have listened carefully, they would have been able to connect the dots. And then as it unfolded, it would have all been clear because Jesus was buried out of sight for three days and then he rose again which was the greatest of all signs. This confrontation here resembles one that Jesus had with the scribes and Pharisees back in chapter 12. By way of review, let me read it. Matthew chapter 12, 38. Some of the scribes and Pharisees answered saying, Teacher, teacher, we, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, 
So the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In effect, Christ was saying that Jonah was a prophetic sign. What happened to Jonah in the belly of the great fish was a type of death and burial, which was followed by a restoration to life. In other words, Jonah's experience illustrates the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ would give them no more signs, with the exception of his resurrection, which would be a fulfillment of the type found in Jonah. Wycliffe Bible Commentary says this was a reference to Christ's bodily resurrection. This was the great sign to which he always pointed when pressed. To believers, a precious proof of their redemption, but to the unbelievers, a portent, a portent of coming judgment by the risen Christ. And then it says, he left them and departed. And when it says this, he left them and departed, the language here is very strong. You see, prior to this, Matthew had used a Greek word meaning to withdraw when speaking of Christ departing. But now he uses a different word, translated in that word left, which means to forsake or abandon. And this indicates that Christ was done with them. John Phillips says, with this parting denunciation, the Lord turned his back on the Pharisees and Sadducees and walked away. Never again did he talk publicly or work a miracle in those parts. Mark at this point, the parallel passage in Mark, at this point indicates that Jesus sighed deeply. Notice what it says specifically here, Mark chapter 8, 12, 13. But he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. And he left them and getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. The sense is that Jesus groaned in his spirit. Ed Glasscock says this expressed the deep agony and exhaustion he felt at being constantly in conflict with the faithless, the, the faithless and self-righteous religious leadership. This was not easy. It was hard on Jesus. No wonder Isaiah 53.3 calls Jesus a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And so the narrative continues, verse 5, Now when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. The other side here refers to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which was predominantly Gentile territory. Mark 8.22 indicates they came to Bethsaida on the northeast shore of the sea. And from there, Jesus would retire away from from the constant tensions of Jewish hostility and make his way up to the area of Caesarea Philippi, which, Lord willing, we'll get to next Sunday, where Peter will make that that great confession of faith. So, uh, here is where we are. Uh, He was over here, makes his way up across the sea to Bethsaida, uh, and again, back into Gentile territory, and he will make his way on up here, ultimately, to Caesarea Philippi, which is where we will find him as we continue on in Matthew 16. Verse 6. Verse 6, then Jesus said to them, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now recall how troubled Jesus was in departing from Magdala after his confrontation with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, as reported by Mark. This was still uppermost in Jesus' mind, and so he told the disciples to take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, the disciples at this point had no idea what Jesus was talking about. Perhaps they were thinking that because they were now entering into Gentile territory and had forgotten to take bread, that the issue of leaven might be a concern. Perhaps the only bread available in this Gentile territory might be bread which would contain leaven. And that, of course, would be a problem for the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Something like this may have been in their reasoning. You know, we forgot to take bread. He's talking about leaven. He's talking about the scribes and the Pharisees. They're trying to put it all together. They don't get it. Leaven, or yeast, is put into a loaf of bread to make it rise. And it only takes a small amount to affect the entire batch of dough. Jesus used it as an illustration of how a small amount of evil influence 
can affect a large group and lead many astray. Leaven in the scriptures very consistently represents evil influence that grows and corrupts all as it expands. To the Jewish way of thinking, leaven was consistently representative of evil. The illustration of leaven was that it always brings about far-reaching, harmful effects. But Jesus was here not talking about physical leaven, but rather using it metaphorically to speak of the evil influence of the teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, to beware is to be on guard against. The disciples were to watch out for the evil influence propagated by these religious leaders. But again, they didn't get it, verse 7, and they reasoned among themselves saying, is it because we've taken no bread? <laughs> Can't you see them maybe uh, on the edge of the boat kind of whispering? Did we take, is it because we didn't take bread? What, what's he talking about anyway? You got any idea? All the disciples can figure out, is it perhaps Jesus' words about leaven have something to do with the fact that they have forgotten to bring bread? Again, perhaps thinking we're entering into Gentile territory where we're headed towards, and perhaps there won't be a Jewish baker there who will provide unleavened bread for us. Know what they reasoned among themselves. They didn't want to bring Jesus into the discussion. They're trying to figure out what Jesus possibly meant. Evidently, didn't want to show their ignorance to the teacher. I mean, these guys were all very human, after all. Verse 8, But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, O you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the, the five loaves of the 5,000 and, and how many baskets you took up? Nor the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up? So Jesus applied a mild rebuke, calling them men of little faith. Now, little faith is better than no faith. But they should have realized that with Jesus being along the provision for food is not a concern. After all, they had all been there when he fed the 5,000, and again when he had fed the 4,000. Faith would not, have been, would not have had a concern about whether they were going to have enough bread or not. After all, it had already been abundantly proven that Jesus could provide. Faith should see this clearly. Little is much if God is in it. Little faith, by the way, was one of the most used descriptions of the Lord in reference to his disciples. And I think as they went on in their lives, they must have looked back on their time with the Lord in his earthly ministry, and they must have often mused, oh, how could have we been so slow to get it? And then I think they must have sighed, thinking, well, at least he didn't say no faith, but rather little faith. At least he said, oh, you of little faith. We know from Mark 8, 14, that they did have one loaf. They did have one loaf on the, on the boat. Now, if Jesus could feed 5,000 with five loaves, no problem serving 13. If he could feed 4,000 with seven loaves, no problem feeding 13 with one. Where was their faith? Well, it was weak. They had, they had some faith, but it was little. But here they were completely missing the point. One of the great challenges in learning from Jesus, the greatest of all teachers, is learning when to take him literally and learning when to take him spiritually or figuratively. If you get this out of balance, your understanding will always be askew. Proper understanding means taking what Jesus said figuratively as figurative and taking what he said literally, or as I like to say, normally, as literal. And you know what this requires? It requires thought and discernment that thinks in context. Someone once said, do you take the Bible figuratively or literally? And the right answer is, I take the figurative parts figuratively and I take the literal parts literally. How about that? And there's a place for both. The challenge is to properly understand what is to be taken figuratively or metaphorically and what is to be taken literally or normally. This is what is involved in rightly dividing the word of truth. Let me illustrate. Nicodemus thought Jesus was talking about an actual physical birth when he said one must be born again. Now that will really put your mind into uh, some strange places. 
But Jesus was, in fact, talking about a spiritual rebirth. When the Samaritan woman thought Jesus was talking about material water, when he spoke of the living water, which if one drinks, they will never thirst again, in fact, Jesus was talking about spiritual, the spiritual refreshment of, of having everlasting life. When Jesus told the Jewish crowd in John chapter 6 that unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you, they assumed he was describing some form of literal cannibalism. And they were offended by that. And they walked away. But in actuality, Jesus was speaking metaphorically of applying the truth of his sacrifice by faith. And we don't have to wonder how to take Jesus on this occasion because he plainly told us. As you, as you read on through the story, John 6, 63, it is a spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. By the way, the largest representation of Christendom, not authentic Christianity, but the largest uh, representation of Christendom, doesn't get this right. Roman Catholicism, based on Christ's words of eating his flesh and drinking his blood, still think he was speaking physically instead of spiritually. Instead of partaking of the elements at the Lord's table as merely a memorial in remembrance of Christ's body and blood, they practice what is called transubstantiation. The Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation claims the priest has the spiritual power to transform the elements into the actual body and blood of Christ in a miraculous way. And that the Mass is therefore actually a partaking of the actual body and blood of Christ. And this amounts to a re-sacrificing of Christ each time they partake of the Mass. Thus, they are completely missing the point of what Christ was saying and completely overlook Christ's own clarification that what he was saying was to be taken in a spiritual sense and not a physical sense. When one takes what Christ said in a physical sense, when the intention is a spiritual sense, you end up with nonsense. And that is what was happening here on this occasion. They failed to see that Christ was making a spiritual application and using the idea of leaven in a strictly metaphorical sense. Verse 11, how is it you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? So Christ now plainly tells them he is not talking about bread. In fact, he hadn't mentioned bread, just leaven. His warning was to watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This had nothing to do with bread and everything to do with leaven, metaphorically speaking. Verse 12, then, then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine, the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Finally, they got it. The warning was concerning the doctrine or the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These were the key religious leaders in the land of Israel. They were the most respected of all the people. They were thought to be the men of God. And here Jesus is telling the disciples to watch out for what they teach because it is a corrupting influence. By the way, Jesus had more trouble with the religious leaders in Judaism than with any other group. Religious hostility against the truth of Christ is the worst. The Pharisees were the religious legalists and the Sadducees were the religious liberals. The Pharisees were the ritualists. The Sadducees were the rationalists. They represented the full spectrum of religious error in Judaism. They came from different angles, but they were both wrong about God and His truth as found in Jesus the Messiah. The word Pharisee means separated one. I mean, they were the conservatives who claimed to take God and His word very seriously. The problem was... 
their religion was all about externals and therefore very legalistic. And this in turn catered to self-righteousness and pride. They failed to see the real issue was the heart of people and that this is where relationship with God really begins. The Sadducees were the rationalists. You see, they didn't believe in the supernatural. By some historical accounts, it seemed they only held to the, the first five books of Moses as being the word of God. They didn't believe in angels or spirits. They didn't believe in the resurrection or the immortality of the, spirit, of the soul. They didn't believe in eternal punishment. For them, it was all about a religion of your best life now. They got there before Joel did. We often say the Sadducees were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. Ironically, they didn't believe in the supernatural, and yet here they were challenging Jesus to do a supernatural sign from heaven. You know what we call that? Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. The Sadducees controlled the temple, and they tended to be very wealthy in positions of great power. Uh, Pharisees were more of the common, everyday man. But the Sadducees, as such, were political activists, being very well connected to the Herodian party. They were political movers and shakers. In fact, the parallel passage in Mark 8.15 speaks of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And it would seem that the leaven of the, of the Sadducees was essentially synonymous with the leaven of Herod, since most of the Sadducees were politically Herodians. That is to say, avid supporters of the political dynasty, the political party that supported Herod. So, what do we see here with these guys? Uh, by way of contrast, the Pharisees leaven, they were legalists, ritualists, separatists, externalists. The Sadducees were liberals, rationalists, political activists, materialists. It's all leaven. Even though they came from somewhat differing theological perspectives, both groups were defined by religious hypocrisy, self-righteousness, and pride. And the bottom line problem is that they both had an errant view of Scripture, which caused them not to be properly discerning when it came to seeing Christ as the Messiah. John Phillips says this, great statement here. Each sect in its own way had leavened and corrupted the holy bread of Scripture. The ritualists, by what they had added to it, and the rationalists, by what they had taken away from it. The bottom line is that the key recognized religious leaders in Israel were off in their teaching. They were both off on the Scriptures. And when you're off on the Scripture, your doctrine will be wrong. And your practice will be wrong. And your conclusions will be wrong. Especially in this case about the Messiah. Thus they could not properly discern the signs of the times because they had corrupted the Scriptures. Neither the Pharisees nor the Sadducees had a high view of Scripture. They both put their ideas, their own ideas, above the Word of God. The Pharisees with their extra-biblical traditions and the Sadducees with their rationalism. Consequently, they were both dead wrong when it came to Jesus. They demanded more signs, heavenly signs. And here, the greatest of all signs, the Son of God sent from heaven, doing innumerable acts by the power of heaven, was standing right before them in perfect fulfillment of the Holy Scriptures. And they missed it which also lined up with Scripture. Isaiah 53. Who has believed our report? Isaiah the prophet speaking, for the prophets. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The plaintive answer is Israel failed to believe the report of the prophets. They failed to see it. To whom was the arm that is the power of the Lord revealed. The answer was to Israel in the person and the power of Messiah Jesus. Israel had both the testimony of the prophets and also the first person power of the Lord 
through the Messiah on display. They had both. And they missed him. Tragedy of all tragedies, they missed him. Beware of religion that leads away from the truth of Christ. That leads away from a high view of scripture. For the end of that way leads to rejecting God's truth. And ultimately, abandonment by Christ. Which is what happened to these Pharisees and Sadducees. In our study this morning, we see these traits of a wicked generation. A wicked generation comes challenging Jesus in spite of all the evidence for his claims. A wicked generation seeks for more signs when what God has given is already more than adequate. A wicked generation cannot discern obvious spiritual truth. A wicked generation fails to see that Christ is the fulfillment of the prophetic scriptures. A wicked generation lacks faith in Jesus. And a wicked generation, while being very religious, has an errant view of Scripture, resulting in an errant view of God's truth as found in Jesus. Well, by way of application, we want to be very careful about religious legalism that adds to the Word of God. And that's a huge problem for Christendom at large today. And we want to be very careful about religious liberalism that is very rational, given over to, I should say, rationalism, that thinks it knows better than God. You know what? When God speaks, it ends the argument. There's a lot of things I don't know, but I always want to say, God, whatever your truth is, I agree. Even if I don't understand it, I start with the presupposition, God is always right. And, and, and God, whatever that is. Uh, you know, we talk about uh, Calvinism, Arminianism. Say, God, are you a follower of Calvin? Uh, God, are you a follower of Jacob Arminius? Uh, God is God. God, I line up with you. Uh, w- truth. Uh, I start with that presupposition. But suddenly today, many seem to kind of know better than God about the role of men and women, about sexuality, about the creation account, when in fact he was the only one who was there, and on and on. Both legalism and liberalism are leaven, and we must ever be on guard against them, for in the end they represent deadly error. Religion in any form that fails to have a high view of Scripture And thus a high view of Christ is always a spiritually corrupting thing. Jesus said to the Jews in John 5, 46, 47, If you believe Moses, you would believe me? For for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? They go together. The watchword of the Reformers in the Reformation was sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. In a day when the church controlled how most people conceived of all things spiritual, the reformers brought it back to the singular authority of Scripture. You see, a church is not the authority. Experience is not the authority. A clergy person is not the authority. Rationalism is not the authority. I submit to you sola scriptura. Scripture alone is the authority. Get that right. And proper discernment will follow. Get that wrong, and you end up with mere religion that is wicked and adulterous. So let us resolve to always maintain a high view of Scripture. And not be sidetracked either by legalistic ritualism or by liberal rationalism. It's ultimately not about religion, but relationship with God through Christ based on the uncompromised truth of Scripture. For the faithful, led by the truth, the watchword ever remains sola scriptura. Let's stand and have our closing song.
of my life. 